And now it's time for News with My Dad. A show where we talk about the news with my dad. And on the line, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad. Coming at you live, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? I am amazed. It's only 7.32. So, so now I get it. You make comments if if it's if I go long with an interview, you make comments. If I don't go long with an interview, also make comments. I now think that the that the common thread but, but there should, is you making comments. You should look upon this as a com- compliment, a congratulations, a, a expression of gratitude. Really, is that how I should take it? I think I don't know that that's how I took it. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. Sometimes we just have. The production meeting on the air. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have two. First, I want a shout-out for Danny Wilson and his band, The Leather Boots, who Luther Boots, who have been giving free concerts at Oregon, Oregon's prisons and raising raising the morale of the prisoners just a really neat thing that they are doing and then i want to shout out for the mayor of richmond virginia who has ordered that all confederate statues on city land are to be removed in the next 60 days good for him well dad there's a bunch of stuff to get into including i want to talk about what's going on with uh, donald trump and with the with the information that, and I'm going to get your take on the information that uh, the Russian government was paying for uh, Taliban troops to target. Maybe, maybe up to 100K. Absolutely. Before we dive into the news, though, I, I want to acknowledge the passing of Rob Reiner at 9898. Rob Reiner was, contributed so much to the quality of life in America with the, through the, the comedy and, and and insightfulness. Uh, his movie, Oh God, was funny, but also very, very insightful. Rob Reiner gave us a lot. Other things we want to get into. I want to get into the ballot initiatives, Dad. I want to get into the ballot initiatives. That Look, today is the last day to turn in signatures for ballot initiatives. And I think, go ahead. I just want to say it wasn't Rob Reiner who died. It was Carl Reiner. Rob Reiner is still person. alive. Rob Carl Reiner is still alive. Did I say Carl? No, you said Rob. I did say Rob. Carl is the person who died. Rob is still well. Yeah, still you're alive. right. Carl is the excuse me for that. Thank you. That was Julie Oppenheimer. Julie, she's welcome anytime. She's the one who makes a show happen. Uh, and by the way, if you got a text, so there's a news story you want us to get into nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. But I want to talk about the ballot initiatives and what's getting in. What you're actually going to vote on today again is the last day to submit signatures. And there is also a lawsuit filed. For by one of the initiatives, we'll talk about that one. And there are a couple we know about on the ballot relative to our ability and to legally use drugs. But yeah, that, it, look, it looks it looks like we're going to have if the if the signatures hold up, they seem to have enough a big enough number. They probably will hold up. We're going to get to vote on whether or not we can make, however you pronounce it, mushrooms uh, legal under certain restricted conditions. So what I was building, all of those were the teasers. I was, what I was going to do, this is what I was going to do. We'll have the production meeting real quick. So I was going to do a couple of teasers, and then we we're going to talk about those things later. And then I was going to say something else. Now, the thing I was going to say was this. I don't know if you saw this, but irregardless is now in the dictionary. <laughs> You're kidding. So this Irregardless, is, which means exactly the same thing as regardless. It, or the opposite. In the in the dictionary, it means the same thing as irrespective and regardless, which, of course, is why anybody says it, because irrespective is something that people say and regardless is something people say. And so for some people, it got mixed up and they say irregardless. Well, now, because enough people have gotten it wrong enough times, now irregardless has made it in the dictionary. They say that it is non-standard. This is non-standard, but it's still made it into the dictionary. But irregardless, I will not be saying irregardless. Irregardless of what's in the dictionary, I will not be saying that word. You you forgot you forgot to tell people that that was one of the unimportant. 
Well, you just did. So, Bob, <laughs> let's let's uh, let's go straight into actually the ballot issue. So, psilocybin is the active ingredient in uh, psilocybin is the active ingredient in the uh, in in magic mushrooms, and they are gonna be on the ballot. Uh, they turned in enough signatures, one hundred sixty thousand plus signatures. Uh, activists say that psilocybin has therapeutic purposes, including treating depression and anxiety. If anybody's familiar with microdosing, it is a popular, uh, it's a popular element, a popular thing to microdose, taking just a little, little, little bit of it in the hope that it would address depression and anxiety. And it would legalize those mushrooms for therapeutic purposes in a controlled setting with a licensed vendor. So not recreational purposes. You don't go down to the local, you don't buy it at 7-Eleven or even your no, local uh, you know, mushroom vendor. Uh, but they turned in their signatures. They got 107,000 deemed valid. Uh, the deadline was today. Uh, Dad, you got any thoughts? You have presumably not taken magic mushrooms, at least not intentionally. <laughs> that is correct. To my knowledge, I have not. Have you just been waiting for it to be legal? Is it now your chance? Well, gen- generally, uh, I am in favor of the lack of criminal penalties for the ingestion of naturally growing products. And on this one, the fact that it has to be done under the direction of somebody who at least theoretically knows what he or she is doing and for the specific purpose, hey, why not? Have you thought about You've never done drugs. You've never drank to excess. You've never drank at all, except I think one time somebody slipped something in some punch you drank. Have you ever thought about just, you know, going on a couple of benders? You know, now, you know, it's like, like, what do you got to lose? Nope. <laughs> All right. I mean, it, 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 that is something that has never tempted me. I have, uh, I have enjoyed being drug-free. I have enjoyed being uh, alcohol abstemious. And, uh, and it's just, it's never been a temptation. Another thing that's making out of the ballot, speaking of, uh, speaking of drugs, is Initiative Petition 44. They have also submitted more than 160,000 signatures. That They have announced that's enough to get on the ballot. It looks to be enough to get on the ballot. This would... Uh, now, the top billing, what they market the bill as primarily is as a way to fund drug treatment, and it would take money from marijuana sales and put them in drug treatment. But the uh, maybe more significant thing that it does is it would decriminalize personal non-commercial possession of most drugs. It would downgrade a possession of a controlled substance charge for drugs including heroin, including methamphetamine, including ecstasy. Uh, manufacturing, dealing, delivering large quantities of drugs would still be a crime, but if you had those drugs, uh, it is not a crime. Washington County w- would not be a crime. Washington County District Attorney's Office uh is opposed to it and said, I don't think people understand what, what this would do. And uh, allowing for, all of a sudden it could increase demand for heroin, methamphetamines, and ecstasy because having the drug would not be a crime. The only, the only people at risk would be the people selling. Does your comfort with, uh, does your comfort with uh, decriminalizing drugs extend to initiative petition 44, Pop? Probably does. I, I have not looked at it carefully. I will want to look at it carefully. But generally, I think we just need to acknowledge that the, quote, war on drugs, close quote, has been an abject failure. It hasn't worked. It didn't work any better than prohibition worked on alcohol 80 years ago, 100 years ago. Just, it just hasn't worked, and, and we, we need to own up to that. And, and there, there is so much that could be done through dis, to discourage people from using drugs with imaginative advertising, with imaginative use of bribing television and movies to make it unattractive and make it, people realize that it's dumb that uh, you could do for cheaper than we've been spending on the war on drugs, especially when you consider all of the people who are in prisons and in jails because of violation of drug laws and the expense of maintaining them, feeding them, and housing them, and medicating them. 
it uh, just generally that's the direction we need to go. So you don't want a war on drugs. You want an effective propaganda campaign against drugs. Absolutely. The challenge is, and this is the... Let me tell you why I say that. I say that because I see how hugely successful the propaganda campaign in favor of smoking was in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s. That the, the tobacco industry was so successful in propagandizing and making smoking look like it was sexy and attractive and cool. And they pulled it off. And I think you can do exactly the opposite pretty much the same way. The challenge will be, it is one thing when you have the self-interest drive, and I do think this is where, uh, to me, where the issue is joined. And, and by the way, while we talk about that, when when that was seriously proposed, something like that, the Oregonian back in the day editorialized brutally against such an idea of being, of course, because they didn't want to give up advertising revenue from the tobacco industry. We've come a long way since then. But, that's the, but that is part of the reality, that actually marshalling the public resources to do that kind of public education, to try to convince people not to use a product, particularly if you've already legalized that product. I mean, look at Look at alcohol. Look at what happened with uh, with alcohol. The good news is we stopped, you know, trying to spend all of our uh, all of our time and treasure in the government trying to lock people away for selling and buying alcohol. The bad news is there wasn't major public resource spent on public health initiatives related to alcohol. Uh, similarly, now if we move toward and this is decriminalization, not legalization. But I agree with you. Doing that public education, doing that public health work is critical. The question is, will there be the political will to do it, particularly when the lobbyist and PR machine in favor of wanting to make profit from that stuff ends up taking hold? But that there is another initiative, and I'm bearing the lead a little bit because uh, because the redistricting initiative 55, excuse me, 57, which would amend the state constitution to create an independent citizens redistricting commission. It, right now it happens because of the legislature, right? And if the legislature can't do it, Secretary of State does it. And, the, uh, and we, we interviewed one of the leading Republican lobbyists, uh, at, or I should say strategists in the state, uh, Rebecca Tweed, and she's working with some good government groups and, uh, and, the, and minor political parties to try to change that system to put out a ballot initiative. I forget, did I ask you your view on the redistricting initiative on the air? I don't remember if you asked me, but I would be glad to give it if you'd like. Yeah, fire away. I am prepared to support that the moment that it is it is offered as a national thing which would require that for 50 states. But until that happens, all that is going to do is where you have folks who, states which tend to be on the blue side of the spectrum, and because they're on the blue side of the spectrum, quite frankly, there is a higher degree of integrity, there is a higher degree of patriotism, there's a higher degree of responsibility, and so you'll get them to do that, and then the red states will continue to gerrymander and the end result will be a worse situation than we already have where the House of Representatives, for example, up until two years ago, was in the hands of the party that received substantially fewer actual votes than the other party. And that's not good for democracy. Well... One of the for those loyal listeners of this program, by the way, thank you for doing that and suggest it to some friends. We're going to give you some kind of breaking news. The breaking news is that they have fallen short in gathering the signatures, but there's a huge but. They have filed a federal. They have filed a petition in federal court to order the Secretary of State to change the rules for ballot initiative petitions for the November 2020 election. In that lawsuit, they're asking either reduce the signature requirement, 
And see, they sent out a bu- they sent out a bunch of mail. And of course, the context here, folks, is that as you well know, because you've all been to your grocery store and had you've been on the max line or on your bus, and somebody's come up to you and said, "Hey, would you like to sign my initiative petition?" Well. They're not doing that in the era of COVID-19. That isn't happening nearly as much, getting almost no signatures. Uh, nobody's going door-to-door, et cetera, to get signatures. So they spent a bunch of money sending out mail pieces so that people would sign it and take it back. They had a whole... And, and, and email. They did a lot with email. and uh, is, So their excuse is because of the COVID, they can change the law? They're saying because of COVID-19, they need either allow more time or to allow for fewer signatures. And their argument is, well, it's impossible to get uh, 150,000 signatures by today during a pandemic. Impossible. They have, of course, the fact that they're, how they're going to explain that at least two have apparently managed to do it. Well, those are about drugs, Dad. So if you're about drugs, you could do it. But if you're not about <laughs> drugs, it's impossible. Only a drug initiative can get the signatures necessary. I think that's going to be a hard case to make. Apparently, there is precedent. Apparently, there are uh, there are no, uh, at least one case, uh, and I was told there's many as seven around the country where uh, some sort of some sort of act of God prevented the ability to gather signatures, and so some delay was allowed. And so we will be watching that one with rapt attention. Because to be really clear, I mean, there's a lot riding on this. Uh, in uh, my hunch is, depending on how the campaign goes, and this is a very good chance of passing if it gets on the ballot. And for those for those of us who fancy ourselves pro-democracy folks uh, and good government folks, the idea of a of an independent commission rather than the elected officials themselves drawing lines is very attractive. Eric Holder, uh, Barack Obama's uh, attorney general, went out pitching that around the country. My concern, as soon as he started doing that, was, uh uh-oh, I could imagine only blue states listening to a Barack Obama attorney, former attorney general, and red states saying, oh, if he's for it, then I guess I'm against it. Uh, And then that, as you said, Dad, that happening in states like ours and not happening in other states. I did get, uh, I got a follow-up from our last interview. We interviewed Rebecca Tweed. I did get a follow-up that they are legal women voters is pushing a similar thing in other states we don't know if it's going to pass in other states but they are pushing it in a number of states and it did happen in michigan and in michigan to me is the uh, ideal state for it to happen which is a purple state but that and, and deeply purple state but it had been gary mattered to be a deeply red state in its legislature and even in its in congressional seats and there it seems like a, a, a great place to do it also agree with you dad nationwide seems a great place to do it another critique of this bill is that it has is, is the way the commission works is you get uh, the number one party in the state gets four people on the commission the number two party in the state gets four people on the commission and then an unaffiliated and minor parties I think also get four people on the commission and you create this panel of 12 well one critique is that gives Republicans the same number of Democrat as Democrats and that is not how the state is how the state is right now there's significant more democrats than republicans in the state and so well is that that they see that maybe the reason that uh there is energy to push this is in fact to move us away from being a state that has four democratic members of congress and move us away from a state that now has uh, democrats in control of the house and the senate and make no mistake the line drawing in 2010 was uh, was very related to where the legislature is now and the line drawing back in 2000 and back in particularly 1990 done by phil keesling was uh, was particularly related to the state of affairs 1990 was keesling right uh was yeah pretty sure it was uh, and barbara roberts once told me that appointing phil keesling was the biggest mistake she had made and she was referring to the district drawing that was done that made way for republicans to take hold of the Oregon legislature for over a decade. So that's the controversy, Pop. Yep. All right. You want to you take a quick break, or you got something you want to plug well, or tease before I, the break? I want to talk about protests. Should we do it now, or should we wait till after the break? Go ahead. Let's talk about protests for a minute, and then let's go to the break. Protests. Well, locally, the uh, Portland police attacked protesters outside the North Precinct building, uh, and uh, Speaker of the House Tina Kotet has has sent a message to Ted Wheeler, the mayor, that she believes that 
the behavior of the police was unlawful and unnecessary and inappropriate, and and it, it comes again down to how do you, how do you de-escalate? Do you de-escalate by donning armor and military force? I don't think so. Anyway, the Seattle, the oh, well, before, before we go to Seattle, I think it's worth mentioning that Jenny Young, a coin reporter, TV reporter, tweeted out or, or called the, that uh, the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement, the BDS movement, which is trying to encourage Israel to stop their illegally against international law trying to to take over Palestine, all of Palestine called it uh, the BDS movement anti-Zionist and openly anti-Semitic movement and uh, has been admonished by U.S. lawmakers U.S. lawmakers of course are some who are in the pocket of the Israel lobby uh, that in connection with the, the the protests in Seattle, they finally cleared out Chop, or whether you want to call it Chop or Chaz. Anyhow, they cleared it out. I think it was high time because there were several shootings, two of which were fatal, and there were no police to investigate it, which I think underlines the fact that we really don't want to get rid of police. We want to make police recognize that their success depends upon having the trust and cooperation of the populace and having the trust and and cooperation of the populace requires things like telling the truth and being willing to abide by a law that has now been passed by the Oregon legislature saying, hey, if you see one of your fellow officer doing something he or she shouldn't be doing, you should stop them and you should report it. The idea that it had to have a law for that to happen. And uh, also might mention that ACLU is suing the city police because they say they are targeting reporters and other journalists. All significant happening just right here in and our backyard. And let's dwell on that for a moment. Yeah, Tuesday night, three more journalists were arrested at a protest at Union Hall. Police declare the protest a riot, began tear, grass, tear gassing the crowd. Uh, reporter Corey Elliott was arrested uh, after he identified a cop by name on camera. Uh, Leslie McClam and another independent journalist who tweets under the name uh, Portland Independent Documentarians were taken into custody during that alleged riot. Uh, and now the ACLU has, in fact, uh, filed a lawsuit claiming the Portland police are targeting and attacking journalists and legal observers covering the protest. Uh, the suit claims that police have tear gas, pepper sprayed, beaten and arrested journalists, observers and other neutral bystanders who are documenting the police's response to the protest. Uh, I also, however, want to comment that that it is not it is not all one sided because you do have some some of these protesters instead of peacefully marching and, and making a point who are throwing bottles and throwing bricks and throwing rocks, and that is not okay. And you especially have some who are not protesters at all, but who are using the protests as a cover for venting anger and just breaking windows for the hell of it. And worse, who are going into places and looting. We are seeing this as a great cover to go in and steal stuff. And, and while we're mentioning that, the uh, Portland Has there, hasn't Portland. there been? I mean, I know that was for a couple of nights, but is that something that's happening right now? Is that something that's been happening the last week or two? That is. Oh yeah, something... that happened on MLK. There were windows broken on MLK just last week. What was there stealing? Yep. Where? And and I should say that the the Portland police. Hmm. There's a news article that I I was not able to go online and find it, but supposedly, if you go to the the police websites, Portland police website and find the can you ID me, they are asking for help in identifying looters and I would encourage anybody who can identify a looter should do that because that would be also be a step in the right direction. Dad, it does look like the uh, that uh, something we talked about before uh, that the uh, uh, that 
KGW, using publicly available flight data, KGW found that Portland police have spent more than 65 hours flying surveillance over protesters. We had reported before about the letter from the congressional delegation asking if it had been uh, Homeland Security or if it had been the Marshals Service uh, that was doing, if it had been a federal plane. We don't have word on that, but it, unless there's been more than one plane, uh, the Cessna Skyhawk that couldn't be identified by demonstrators on the ground because it was flying too high. Flight records show the aircraft was operated by the Portland Police Bureau. This was your speculation. This was your guess. Yeah, that, that was what I said I thought was probably the case. And, and it sounds like, according to that, according to that reporting, you were correct. Uh, the airplane spent five hours and 43 minutes flying wide counterclockwise circles over demonstrators. The plane eventually landed at 1.48 a.m., uh, the aircraft and something that people need to, need to know is that that plane, actually there, there are two planes, the 172 and 182, those are up just about every night, especially on weekends. Are they up, and, and they're a very, very useful resource. And I, I don't think it was ominous at all. All the news that is fit for us to talk about if we're in the mood. You're listening to X-Ray in the morning. This is News of My Dad. I'm Jeff, and radio is yours. City of Portland has declared a climate emergency. I declare a climate emergency! That hours after the city, hours after uh, Ted Wheeler and Chloe Udaly in reverse order withdrew their support from the I-5 widening project, they then announced a climate emergency. And by the way, I'm glad it was in that order, and I don't think that is uh, a coincidental the triggering cause of the Albina Vision Project pulling their uh, support based on ODOT's inability to demonstrate uh, sort of cultural competence and a commitment to actually make uh, make good on commitments to amplify racial justice and try to restore, do some restorative justice in the community. But we've but Democratic elected officials have been talking out of both sides of their mouth for a long time on this stuff, talking about climate change on one hand and then being highway expanders on the others. It sounds like you were enthusiastic about it. Go ahead. Well, the Albina, the Albina Vision Trust said, hey, this is really a bad idea. And when that happened, that uh, apparently gave some backbone to Ted Wheeler and Chloe Daly. And, and I think there was a, a county commissioner, too, that uh, that came out against it. And, and it looks like it, at last, that 500 million dollar boondoggle which by the way they say 500 million historically the odds are very high that billion dollars easy substantially more than that is uh, is not going to happen and it shouldn't happen because <laughs> it, it, it it was based upon a lie the idea that that was going to actually sp- sufficiently speed up traffic that it was going to reduce emissions Absolutely ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. And they were, I mean, the, the, the big highway builders in this town, I mean, they were really effective, right? I mean, they were really effective. And they, they crush opposition quietly or loudly. Uh, the, uh, the, their, the political uh, turf is littered with the bodies of people who have opposed them. But, the, uh, but it is a, uh, this is a potentially a big deal. Now, I haven't heard the final decision from ODOT, right? Just because the mayor pulls their support, just because... And then Jessica Vega Peterson pulls her support just because Albina Vision Project and Chloe Daly pull their support. Uh, it, it, it is not the final word. It does mean the Portland Bureau of Transportation uh, isn't going to be in cahoots and helping them. And that does maybe necessitate, practically it should necessitate, a significant change. But again, this project is connected to a, 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 the major bridge, bridge expansion project. Cause if you, and if you do one without the other, this is some. This has been an uncomfortable reality that the big highway builders and the uh, and also in, when they don the clothing of bridge builders, that they have uh, not really wanted to talk about. But if you do, if you add a bunch of lanes to the I-5 bridge and you don't expand uh, all the freeway in uh, through uh, through North Portland, then what you're going to have is you're just going to move the bottleneck south. I mean, if you're going to do one, you have to do the other. These have always been part and parcel connected, even if the advocates haven't advocates for the project. So the consultants have been making money doing it, even if they haven't want to be talked about it. They've always been connected. So I, I think this 
begs the question then of what happens to the big bridge, bridge project. Do they just wait it out until there's a different mayor, or a different city council, until they can buy them off or persuade them? Do they transform the project? Do they just do it and say, oh, well, so there's a bottleneck. Eventually, there'll be a bad enough bottleneck. People hate it so much that they'll want to, that they'll want to expand it. I can imagine that being the answer. Uh, anything else on that? But this has been something you and I have been following since the dawn of this show. And heck, it, I am one of the bodies littering the field. I mean, this is something that you and I have been paying attention to uh, since the Columbia River crossing was uh, was looking like an inevitability. Yes, we have. And once again, this gives me an opportunity to say <laughs> to say that we could do so much. Yuck! It's gross quickly by the combination of polls based on time of day and polls so you mean tolls, tolls. you don't tolls, mean you don't tolls, mean figuring tolls, out how people are going to vote yeah tolls based on time of day and tolls based on occupancy of the vehicle in combination with a system that it made it easy for people to find folks who work in the same place they do or close to so they could have carpooling to develop real real carpooling you in six months you could reduce the the traffic across the i-5 bridge i'll bet you by at least 30 percent and maybe even 50 percent by simply doing those two things well pot this is that's a, that's a big one also the climate uh, state of emergency uh, came coming out with saying we need to do 30 things, saying that we're asking a PGE and Pacific Corp to uh, have uh, to offer renewable energy to everyone in the city by 2030. And 2030 to me still seems like a long way away. It's only 10 years ago, uh, 10 years from now, right? Like 2010 was only 10 years ago, right? I remember when people used to say, oh, in 2020, we'll do this thing. All these organizations that had 2020 vision plans. I, I, I'd love to go back and read all the organizations that have 2020 vision plans. It always seemed a long way off. That's now. And 2030, that's not that far from now. So anyway, the climate change of emergency, applause to the uh, city council for pushing on that. And do you, do you by any chance have in front of you the, the laundry list of the things that all that all that said they're going to try to do? No, but we can take a look at it. It's, uh, it's a pretty it's a, a pretty impressive and thoughtful list. Do you have it in front of you? Well, I had it in front of me, and I've lost it, which is driving me crazy. I thought I knew exactly where it was, and I can't find it. Well, we'll pull it up. But another big thing here's another big thing that's happening in the uh, in city council is that the city council has now set a date to vote on the residential infill project, the RIP project. This was... Yes. Uh, go a, ahead. A week, from a week from today, they're going to vote on seven amendments, and then on the uh, first week in August, they're going to vote on the whole thing. And, and that's, that's really complicated, and I'm, would, I'm going to be interested to hear your take on it. Well, let's give a little bit of the background. What this does, it was initially drafted under Mayor Hales, uh, Charlie Hales, in 2015. And he directed the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability to undertake the project. And since then, the Oregon legislature changed zoning laws to require most cities, including Portland, to allow more, ha more housing in neighborhoods zoned for single-family homes. The idea being that single-family homes end up, if that's all you're allowed to build, that reduces the chance for density, makes housing potentially more expensive because there isn't as much supply. The plan before the city council would allow four units on virtually every lot. So every house that's a single family home could have uh, could be torn down and be turned into a fourplex. Uh, and that's more than is now required by the state. And this project has divided people of goodwill in town. Supporters strongly argue that it will reverse a bunch of discriminatory zoning restrictions, decades of discriminatory zoning protect, uh, restrictions, and would allow the construction of lower-priced housing in neighborhoods where lower-income residents, particularly people of color, cannot afford to live. Opponents argue that it will encourage the demolition of existing homes without any guarantee that families can afford the replacement housing. You'll allow... So right now... Uh, so you you could tear it you know tear down your single family home put a fourplex in place but you could still put up you know condos that each of them cost half a million dollars a piece not necessarily reducing the cost of housing but being a big giveaway to uh, to developers 
the uh, there have been arguments about, well, should there be some requirement that if you do it, should there be some uh, price controls in place? Should there be should should there be some uh, alteration to just it being a permissive thing that anybody can go ahead and add three units to their single family home? Uh, but I and I haven't looked closely enough at the seven amendments that are getting voted. I'll have to do that both for uh, for us and for the local and for the daily local news podcast. I would that that would be a really interesting thing to hear from our listeners about too. Yeah, if you got thoughts, and I know, and we have listeners who have uh, who have uh, who have persuasively and passionately had their voices heard because this is, I mean, housing now. If you ask voters in Portland now, racial discrimination is, I think, finally at least in a national wide pool of young voters, and I think of Portland voters as well, not just young. The racial discrimination has ended up garnering the greatest attention, but for multiple years, really since the recession, uh, I think really since the housing crisis back in like 2011, 2012, I think that we have seen a uh, that that housing has been the number one issue. Housing costs, affordability of housing, uh, access to housing has been the number one issue. And as I said before, politics tends to be a lagging indicator. Legislative proposals end up being lagging indicators. Instituting initiatives end up being lagging indicators, right? Because you build a political will based on a problem, and then what the political will happens, then maybe you can pass a bill, and then maybe you can implement that bill, and meanwhile, maybe public attention has moved on. Uh, that doesn't always mean the problem has been solved. It just means sometimes political attention has moved on. It doesn't mean that it's still not worth doing. It's not like housing is no longer a problem. We're still going to have uh, millennials rising to home-owning age, as they have been, for another about seven years. Uh, where we're going to continue to have greater demand on on housing for probably about seven years. After that, uh, and, I, and I suspect after that, what we may see is what we saw in the 50s and 60s, which is greater demand for suburban housing. Uh, and then it might be that we have a whole bunch of new housing in cities that then becomes cheaper. But tell that to the person who's trying to live in their town, who's trying to live in the urban area in the next, you know, in the next decade, in the near term. The text line, if you've got thoughts, 971-220-5979, 971-220-5979. What do you think about the residential infill project? What do you think ought to be done to either pass it, to stop it, or to change it? What are your thoughts? 971-220-5979. We'd love to hear your thoughts or maybe even hear your questions. And, and I, I have always been, been bemused by the acronym RIP, R-I-P, used for it, which when I was growing up always meant rest in peace. I think it kind of means that still. <laughs> while we're talking about uh, while we're talking about this kind of stuff, we, we've talked a little about bridges. I think it's worth mentioning that there's a serious proposal to build a pedestrian and bicycle bridge across 405 on Northwest Flanders uh, that... Uh, one one more thing for the bikers, and also before we leave state and local entirely, I want to mention that Mike Bergman, the boss of the Portland Track Association, is maybe going to successfully promote a a competition quality track that's running track and stadium in Maupin that they think that they may be that Maupin is close enough to population centers that they'll get uh, hundreds and maybe even thousands of people to go watch people run races because they have better they have better weather there they don't get nearly as much rain and then while we leave while we before we leave state and local well, there may be others but I would be interested in your take on their telling folks who want to be lawyers that if you graduated from an accredited school you don't have to take the bar exam this year and, and, I, and I will confess that I think that's a lousy thing to do because uh, when I took the bar, there were about two-thirds of us passed, and I was one of them. But what's your thought about that? A four-to-three vote in the Oregon Supreme Court. I know they don't usually call it a vote. They call it a decision. They pretend it's not a political determination. It's just, you know, they're in their ivory, you know, decision-making place, not their voting place. But... I'll call it a vote for now. Very close, as close as one can get in the Oregon Supreme Court, to allow graduates, 2020 graduates of Oregon's three law schools or graduates of any other ABA-accredited law school where the uh, where graduates had a minimum of 86% 
pass the 2019 bar exam. So as long as you're a you know decent law school, then graduating 2020, you get to join the bar without taking the bar exam. Uh, I, you know, it is. I'd want to hear the alternative proposal. I'd want to hear the alternative because the alternative proposal is wait a year, right? That's kind of tough. Because people have already, you know, they're already in debt. They've already been spending three years. And this is why it was four to three, because it's a hard decision. Uh, they've already been uh, spending their time and treasure doing this thing, uh, getting into debt. And now it's time. And what you ask them to wait a year. And what are they going to do for that year? Now, here's why uh, I might have ended up, I might have been ended up one of the three. And, and I worry that, though, the, re- the reason I argue both sides of my mouth on it is because I worry that would be in part because I'm a, I'm a, you know, law school snob. Because uh, I do think there is something that it forces you to do when you study for the bar. Uh, it forces you actually to learn some stuff you should have learned in law school. It also forces you to learn some stuff that you didn't get taught in law school because you took various classes that weren't covered. Uh, it also demonstrates some ability to to you know do some discipline to work hard. And it mean you know and and I do think that weeding out some folks, not every single law graduate, I think necessarily needs to be. Uh, needs to become a lawyer unless we're saying that the other thing that occurred to me i mean could you have it be that uh, i mean do you do it based on grades do you have it based on recommendations do you have some other system that says okay well if 86 percent of you would have passed the bar exam then we'll we'll allow That'd you know 14 percent who wouldn't 14 percent wouldn't are now gonna be lawyers and, and that's a lot that's kind of a lot. And and at least, you know, because you say, okay, well, we're going to take our top half or our top two-thirds or top three-quarters, and you get to and you get to badge in. Uh, but the rest of it, yeah, you're still going to need to take the you're still going to need to take the exam. Uh, I would love to I would love actually to talk to some of the people who are involved in that argument. But yeah, there's some members of the Oregon Bar who are pretty uh, who are pretty disappointed about it. Should we talk about the virus? Let's take a quick break, Pop, and then when we come back, we'll talk about coronavirus. You're listening to X-Ray. I'm Jeff. This is my dad. This is News with My Dad, a show we talk about the news with my dad. Got a couple of texts in. Who do standardized tests serve? Who do they keep out? Maybe from the same person. Who are the standardized tests working to accept as lawyers? Not sure that was from. I'm assuming it was from Joe Pesci. Uh, you raise an excellent question, and you didn't pose the question rhetorically. But if you had posed rhetorically, I'd say yours is the mo- maybe the best argument. I have to assume that there is uh, that if you looked at the passage rates, non-passage rates of any standardized test, that you we can find bias in the results. I, I have to imagine, or at least at least results that disadvantage a community that we don't want to disadvantage. I, I'm almost certain about that. And uh, and I'll say that I don't sort of call my own play. I don't rely on my own viewpoint on the use of standardized tests because I have a soft spot, a soft spot for them that I should uh, sort of a bias of my own that I should make clear. I was saved by standardized tests when I was a first grader. I thought I was stupid. I was in the lowest reading group. And uh, and I I thought I was a dumb dumb. My self-esteem was really low. And I took a test and I did really well on it. And then I got moved up in a higher reading group. Uh, my ability to do well on standardized tests convinced me that I wasn't just an idiot. And that helped, it really impacted my life in a positive way. And I recognize that that's got to have some impact, right? Any, any of us who say we're not biased by our own life experience or not being honest about how we form our own viewpoints. Uh, so so I'll, I will acknowledge that own bias within myself. Uh, it is, and so with all of that said, with that caveat said, the bar exam has felt different to me than, let's say, the SAT or even, let's say, the LSAT in significant part that uh, uh, and, and I was and I was a kid with learning disabilities like growing up. And so uh, it, but it was the kind where I could still pull off where I could still pull off a test. The uh, the difference is, is that the bar exam is a knowledge test as discrete from just like a reading comprehension test. Uh, but certainly there are, I, I'm certain there are categories of uh, talented people who be effective lawyers who have more challenging time dealing with the uh, dealing with the bar exam. And I think that's legit. And that almost certainly related to why four out of seven Supreme Court justices in Oregon allowed people to pass the bar without uh, without taking the test. So uh, so very much appreciate uh, very much appreciate the engagement and your uh, um, and your texting in. 
Uh, we got to text in you. Dyslexics uh, make up 20% of the population and that standardized tests are terrible for people with dyslexia. If you have a thought, if you have a view, the text line is 971-220-5979. It's 971-220-5979. Dad, uh, what else you got? Virus. Go ahead. Well, first, it's kind of scary that uh, there has been a real uptick in the number of small children catching it, which is scary. But the big thing is, as of yesterday, folks, if you're going indoors in a business in Oregon, you should be wearing a mask. The governor doesn't want police to go out and be arresting you, but she really does want business to be enforcing it. I'm interested to see if that... Uh, changes things at Fred Meyer. I, I couldn't help noticing when I had to get some groceries, I went to Trader Joe's and they really were doing a very effective job of, of minimizing the likelihood that I would either contaminate somebody or be contaminated by somebody. When I went to Fred Meyer, hey, people going around not wearing masks, Fred Meyer apparently not caring anything about it. I'll be interested to see how they do that, but generally, folks, wear a mask if you are going out and intend to go in a building and if you're going to go somewhere where you'll be close to people even outdoors you should wear a mask and it's good to wear a mask the uh, nationally yesterday over 50,000 new cases wow and Dr. Fauci says it could get to 100,000 if we don't do a better job at wearing masks and social distancing. Two-thirds of the states are showing increases. Uh, the president says, oh, it's just going to disappear. I hope it's just going to disappear. And they couldn't be a better reading of this guy's mind when he said, he now says, yeah, masks are okay, because he said, I look good in a mask. And that's what it has come down. Everything comes down to for that man is how does it reflect on him? Does it matter to whether it will save thousands or even hundreds of thousands of lives? No, no. It comes down to whether or not he looks good in a mask. Oh, so awful. Original text we got on the testing issue was from Ms. Collins, a public school teacher. Thank you, Ms. Collins, both for being a teacher and for texting you the show. Another text that I miss that I don't want to miss, uh, this impacts people of color in the opposite way. I think the opposite way means there's members of community, communities of color that standardized tests discriminate against. No argument, uh, no argument about that. Totally hear that and agree. Uh, and, and this is why I started out with talking about my own bias, because I recognize it's more comfortable for me. You know, I've sort of like that. Oh, yeah, there ought to be these, you know, bargs in. That's a, uh, should be part of the rite of passage. But how much of that is just because I had to do it, right? I mean, it's a little bit like a, you know, like free college, right? It, it, just because somebody had to pay for college, got college debt, is that is that a good enough reason to oppose somebody else not having to pay uh, pay for college? Probably not a good enough reason. But I recognize that it can impact our uh, our own feelings, and I'm certain it impacts mine. Uh, so again, if you got thoughts on that or other topics, nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. Dad, yeah, the uh, here's the piece of good news about the virus is it looks like now experts are willing to say that the protests do not seem to be increasing the uh, right. uh, the infection level. St a study a study of cities the, the study of cities that uh, only only Phoenix where they had uh, large protests showed increase but that was of course in the, the in the state where the governor opened up too soon and so it was much more likely to the early opening but the protests don't seem to have made people sicker and a number of reasons for that uh that are uh speculated seems like too weak a word but confirmed seems like a mildly too hard a word but the at least speculation from the let's call it analysis let's call it analysis from experts, the number of things. One, that this one didn't occur to me. So the fact that people wear masks at protests when they do. Uh, there, were, that, there were a lot of masks on the protesters, and it was all outdoors. That helps, right? That undoubtedly helps. Another thing that occurred to me that I think uh, undoubtedly helps is that, yeah, as you said, it's outside. And as we know, that because it takes, you know, let's say ballpark a 1,000 droplets, that if you're in an enclosed space, those droplets can you know, stew around to create a, an evil, wicked melange. 
but outside, they'll dissipate. It's harder to get those thousand droplets into your eyes, ears, nose, and throat. Uh, but the other one hadn't occurred to me, and that is that uh, the, uh, the fact that there are uh, people who do not protest, who decide to stay off the streets. In fact, it might even be that there are fewer people out doing stuff, engaging with other folks because right. they're not in, involved with the protesting. I haven't seen the numbers on that, but that was another piece of whether we call it speculation or analysis. And, and it also is a fact that the protesters generally were limited to people who felt capable of walking a mile or two. And so you, you probably had a, a, a higher percentage of folks in good health and, and with pretty good immune systems. Well, Dad, the Portland Police, excuse me, the Portland City Council has approved a one-year extension of the police union contract. I don't know if you caught that story. Oh, I missed that. Just came out, yeah, just came out yesterday. It postpones a 2.9% cost of living adjustment until June 30th of next year. Uh, does not freeze wages uh, or include furloughs. Uh, and it was unanimous vote by the city council. Uh, the uh, Mayor Wheeler responded to critics who complained that the promised police reforms weren't negotiated in the extension. He said, oh, well, we want to, uh, this is going to allow the city host of public bargaining sessions to resume in January for the next con uh, the next contract. The argument in favor of that is it's going to take a little while to negotiate the contract. The argument against it is now is when passions are high. Now is when people are all paying attention. We just set, we just put out a, you know, the city council just voted on a climate change state of emergency. Uh, that could be, it could be climate change, the thing that people are really paying attention to, the social issue, the human issue that more people are protesting about. And so when there is a moment now when the iron is hot, you got to try to, you got to try to uh, shoe the horse. So I'm, uh, I, I, that, that's the counter argument. Before we get away from the virus, I want to just mention, we're talking about masks last night. I am not kidding. I'm not making this up. Last night on Ingraham, who was apparently on vacation because she had a guy getting for spent, bought an epidemiologist on to poo-poo masks to say that there were no studies that show masks helped. And, and how anybody could say that who surely must have seen the video that shows how masks keep what you breathe from going out several feet instead of just a few inches. Just that much clearly says you're going to let be less likely to infect somebody else. It just blows my mind. But it also explains how the DDT supporters who get all their news from Fox and from Limbaugh and folks like that continue to to be where they are. Well, there is, there hasn't been, you know, to do like a longitudinal study, right? To do like a really good comparative analysis, there hasn't, you know, like, like well, the last three global pandemics we had in the last 30 years that were delivered by breathing, uh, that, that's what happened. Yeah, we don't have that information. But right now, if you go to University of California, San Francisco, UCSF.edu, uh, has a good, uh, you know, still confused about masks. Here's the science behind how face masks prevent coronavirus uh, and gives a really good helpful analysis from one of the best uh, medical schools in the world the uh, that and, and it's just kind of obvious right and this is why I say the droplets thing now we know right it, we thought well okay the thing would be maybe it was it's the it's the contact with a surface well we now know it's mostly from droplets it, it, it dies pretty quickly on a surface doesn't mean you shouldn't wash your hands you know after you've touched some doorknobs you should but that the greatest risk is when you're actually in close quarters with someone and they are breathing, coughing, or sneezing on you or near you or in, a, in the same room as you without good ventilation and you're hanging around together. And this is why the big outbreaks have happened in places, you know, like a food processing plant where there, you know, one person is breathing a lot in there or a few people are breathing a lot in there or in a family group when one person's in the living room, you know, getting that stew of virus around there. It, 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 does, it shouldn't even take a scientist to help us understand that masks matter. And now, but Dad, we're the smelly kid in class. You look around the world, and there are countries now that won't let us travel to those countries 
because we're the ones who've done the worst job in the world of dealing with the coronavirus. That is so embarrassing. And yes, by the way, it is a media story. That wouldn't be the case, but for Fox News, for everybody who helps X-Ray, thank you for doing that. For everybody who helps independent media, for truth-driven media, pro-democracy media, pro-social media, thank you for doing that because it is Fox News that is why we are the worst. It is the president plus Fox News plus right-wing radio calling into question the coronavirus, saying it's something, trying to make it a thing about race rather than think about the common human shared experience of trying not to die from a communicable disease. That's actually what's going on. None of this would be happening if we had, if it weren't for Fox News. And if anybody wants to disagree with me, the text line is 971-220-5979. I'm talking at the higher portion of my register. Yep. My, your your brother drove through drove through Sandy day before yesterday, and there was a guy out holding a sign asking people to sign the petition to kick out our governor because he's telling people to wear masks. Oh my goodness! Uh, should while we're talking about the virus, perhaps worth mentioning that the federal government has agreed to pay. Gilead Company about $140 million for treatment, which uh, apparently, if you're really, really sick from the virus, may reduce how long you are really, really sick by about four days. Uh, the uh, treatment ranges between a little over 2000 to a little over $3,000 which I can't help but think is going to make a lot of profit for Gilead. And uh, as a segue to some international stuff, I just want to cover before we get out, in Latin America, there are all kinds of corruption related to the virus. Folks, folks price gouging not just on PPEs, but on body bags. Oh, my goodness. Well, Dad, July 3rd, just want to put this plug in. July 3rd is the next house concert, the next house show. You can check that out on the on X-Ray's um, Facebook feed or its YouTube feed. You can also find it, and big shout-out to our tech crew. It is now embedded on the website. In fact, if you go to xray.fm now, you can see the Mike Capes show. Uh, we're doing another show on July 3rd. And if you just go to the main X-Ray website, you can see that. Got a text in from Karen, uh, RIP is appropriate because this issue ripped apart the city and neighborhoods. The process for citizen involvement was not democratic as part of the reason Chloe Daly is fighting to hold her council seat. It's a complicated issue, and overall citizens were not well informed. Uh, again, if folks have their thoughts, the text line is 971-220-5979. Really appreciate folks who take the time to send us messages. Uh, got a got a text in like the super local focus today. Yeah, we're trying we're trying to do that more and more because we recognize this is Dad and I care deeply about what's happening in the world and deeply what's happening around the country. But we recognize that where you know where MSNBC or heck where Tom Hartman right after this can deal with a bunch of that stuff. This is one of the few places where we can deal with what's happening in our hometown. So we will, of course, continue to offer our thoughts on what's happening on the national scene, what's happening with national elections for sure. Uh, and uh, But also, we appreciate it. We'll try to do uh, uh, maintain or build a significant focus on what's happening here in our hometown, here in our state. There's a few things i got to run through on election news, Pop. Uh, the uh, uh, Hickenlooper won the Colorado Senate yeah, primary. Yeah, comfortably won. Uh, and and Hickenlooper, Hickenlooper agreeing. I wish Beto O'Rourke had done it in Texas, but Hickenlooper agreeing to run for the, uh, the U.S. Senate might be tantamount to picking up a seat. He is crushing in the polls against the Republican. Knock on wood. Amy McGrath. Uh, Amy McGrath beat Booker. Pulled uh, pulled out. Not Booker. Not Booker. Uh, was it Booker? Yeah. All right. My bad. Hickenlooper uh, beat Romanoff. Uh, and. Uh, in before we get away from Colorado, we should, we should mention that a QAnon believer, Lauren Bobert, however she pronounces her name, displaced Scott Tipton, who was a five-term Republican congressman, and that's a, apparently a very Republican district. So that's liable to be one more QAnon supporter in the Congress, which just goes to show how far to the right the Republican Party has moved. And in well election Oklahoma, by a narrow margin, the voters decided, yeah, they really do want to increase the ability of people to get Medicaid, which seems like kind of a good idea. 
Oh, nice. That's good. It, it, again, it was so upsetting that agreeing to get citizens, get, get people in your state to get access to Medicaid, to, uh, uh, avail themselves of Medicaid expansion, ended up becoming a partisan issue within states because, oh, that looked like they were doing something to help Obama. Obama has health care. He has fine health insurance. <laughs> that would be for other people to get health care. Yep. Uh, here's something that I want to bring up because it also has a local hook. Uh, or at least a local analogy. This is an article in Reuters. Amy uh, McGrath could be a key to a Democratic takeover of the Senate, even if she loses. Right, because it'll require him to spend time and money in Kentucky that he otherwise could be spending out helping his peers. And this reminds me of when uh, Democrats took the Oregon House for the first time in Oregon after you know nearly a decade and a half of Republican control. And the and, you know, in a state that Mike Dukakis had won the presidential uh, vote, Republicans were in control of the legislature. And Karen Minnis was the Speaker of the House. And a guy named Rob Brading, who, by the way, coincidentally or not coincidentally, serves now on the X-ray board. Rob Brading, ran, who was the head of Metro at that time, head of Metro East Community Media, ran for the state house in, uh, in East Multnomah County. And she had to spend all kinds of money that could otherwise have been spent to help her peers and that helped change the house. And Rob Brading lost, but she spent a million bucks. And in that same year that Karen Minnis held on to her seat, Democrats picked up seats. And that was critical in in the movement towards Democrats controlling the legislature. And every every progressive thing that's happened over the last 10 years has been in the context of that switch of congressional, excuse me, legislative control. And as as I was once told to me years ago, the most important vote that is ever cast by a member of a legislative body is the vote to organize the chamber. And while we're talking about local politics, I got an email from Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, urging me to give money to guess who? Uh, Donald Trump. To the Republican members of the Oregon legislature. They don't know you very well. <laughs> I think the challenge is they don't listen to the show. I think if they listen to the show, you might get a different set of emails. Because you end up just using it on the show. I've got to at least mention, in just a moment, we are going to interview Rudy Soto, who is a local guy who's now running for Congress in another state. And we're going to come to that interview in just a moment. But we've got to at least mention that uh, that the there are now multiple Republican candidates who have won Republican primaries in Republican districts who are QAnon enthusiasts. So there will be more members of Congress who are passing along QAnon conspiracy theories uh, almost certainly come, no, come next January. And, and by the way, I should add to my news about Scott sending me an email. He based that upon, he, he, he based the reason I should be supporting them was because of what the governor of Oregon is doing about virus. So help me. Telling people to wear masks. Got no business doing that. Oh, it, there's some international stuff. I just well, quickly want to... Got to be real quick, Dad. It's time. Yeah, so Putin, no surprise, but Putin got the vote to increase his ability to serve as the boss until at least 2036. 2036? 2036, yeah. And to give two more terms. He's, he's, there were six-year terms. He's up in two years, and then he can run twice more. And uh, he'll be he'll be in his late seventies then, and we'll see if he doesn't get another change if his health is good. ISIS is up in Iraq. The uh, China trade deal. The Peter Navarro, our trade guy, says that he thinks the China trade deal is over, and DDT says it's intact. They probably should talk to each other occasionally. Japan's Fugaku. Computer won the international contest for supercomputers. It was 2.8 times faster than IBM. It cost the Japanese $6 billion to build it, but that's something. At Hong Kong, my predictions about what was going to happen in Hong Kong came true yesterday. They went in and went after protesters, arrested hundreds of people, put them all down, and then 
Oh, well, we're talking about China. Perhaps worth mentioning that India is banning TikTok and several other Chinese-owned apps. I didn't know that China owned TikTok, but it does. About 120 million users in India are no longer going to have access. Dad, we got to get to a straw in the wind right now. What I now know is no matter what the time allotment is for the show, it will never be enough. I just know that now. So it's a good lesson, and I've been reminded of that lesson, but I think it is time for a straw in the wind. Straws in the wind. First straw. Wind turbine energy in European in Europe is now cheaper than coal or gas. Denmark, for example, is getting more than 50% of its energy from wind. There's some resistance from people because they're putting up windmills that may be as high as 800 feet. But the other interesting straw in the wind, Mike Lindell, the pillow man, who there was, he was talking about maybe running for governor, straw in the wind, he has a commercial out selling not his pillows, but selling his book. And let me tell you, that's a straw in the wind. I predict Mike Lindell is going to run for governor in Minnesota. Trump's pillow. All right, Pop. We did it one more time. That's a good one. Love you, Dad. We'll be back on Monday. I love you a lot.